Our Old Testament reading is Luke 24, verses 36 through 53 on page 1052. Um, first, Jesus appears to his disciples, and then the last part is the ascension. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is the gospel of the Lord. this time, can we uh, like to dismiss the children who are of age to go upstairs? I'm trusting you all know who you are. Well, today I'm going to be continuing kind of an unannounced informal series of Easter sermons. It kind of turned into this. And uh, um, Easter Sunday, we heard about the centrality of the resurrection. It was appropriate to speak about the resurrection on Sunday, uh, uh, Easter Sunday. And we talked about how Paul considered it the most important thing, the central part of our Christianity. We even said in, in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ wasn't raised, then we of all people are most to be pitied. Those who have given their lives to follow Christ are most to be pitied. Then the next, the next Sunday, last Sunday, we had testimonies from all of you. And for me and many of you, it's one of the best services of the year because we get to hear from one another and hear how God is, is using his re resurrection power and working in the people of our congregation. And this week and next week, we're going to start talking about living the resurrection. How do we live in light of the resurrection? 
And so, if you would pray with me, we'll get started. Father, we thank you for this time, and and Lord, I pray that you would use my words today, use this service to continue to draw us closer to you. Clear away the dross from our hearts, Lord, and help us to follow you as you have called us to do. In Christ's name, amen. In his book, Living the Resurrection, Eugene Peterson talks about uh, an evangelist named Billy Sunday. Anybody ever heard of Billy Sunday? Old evangelist from back in the 1800s. I think he died in the early 1900s, but he was a famous baseball player. And Billy Sunday became an evangelist and went and started holding tent meetings all over the country and, and, and seeing people come to Christ by droves. And Billy Sunday, what he would do is he would have what was called the sawdust trail. So whenever you had these tent meetings, there was, it was dirt floors and it was just, you know, out in a field somewhere. And so they would throw sawdust down on the ground to kind of, if it was muddy, the sawdust would kind of help mitigate that. And if it was real dry, it would also help mitigate the dust. So Billy Sunday, I don't know if he coined this term, but he, he had this term of hitting the sawdust trail. And that meant coming to Christ. So at the end of his services, he would preach the gospel. And at the end of his services, he would have an altar call. That altar call was him inviting anyone who would to come forward and receive Christ. That would be hitting the sawdust trail. And they'd come up and they would make a public commitment to Christ. Now, one thing Billy Sunday had, he had this philosophy of the Christian life. And Peterson talks about this in his book. He says... Billy Sunday would describe the ideal Christian life as this. Hitting the sawdust trail, give your life to Jesus, then walk outside, get hit by a Mack truck, and straight to heaven. (laughs) Now, Peterson says this tongue-in-cheek, but he, he, he comments on this. He said, now, that's a wonderful formula for getting to heaven, isn't it? It's the quickest and easiest way, and virtually foolproof. There's no time to backslide. There's no temptations to bother with, no doubts to wrestle with, no spouse to have to honor, no kids to put up with, no enemies to love, no more sorrow, no more tears. Instant eternity. What more could we ask for? Isn't that beautiful? But Peterson goes on to say in his book, and his book, by the way, is about living in the resurrection, uh, living the resurrection. Peterson goes on to say there is much, much more to the Christian life than simply sitting and waiting for heaven. Simply waiting for ourselves to die. The resurrection of Jesus meant that eternal life doesn't begin after you die. I think we have this idea that that eternal life happens once we die. Then we're good. But the truth of the gospel is that eternal life begins the moment you receive Christ. That's when your new life begins. That's when eternal life begins. Followers of Christ have a calling, therefore, to begin living now. To begin living in light of the resurrection and living with that resurrection power now. Remember, even Jesus, he didn't come just to die on the cross and be raised from the dead, did he? If that was the case, it would have been a very quick process. He would have come, died, rose again, and all done. But Jesus came to live a life. In fact, he came to be born, to to, to grow up from a baby all the way through a typical human life. In fact, he didn't even live in a life of royalty. He lived a life sometimes of poverty. And dealing with the lowest of the low and, and living with the lowest of low and reaching out to them and caring for them and suffering. 
in order to show us, number one, how much he loved us, but also what he came to do, what it looks like to have the kingdom of God on earth, coming to heal, coming to forgive, coming to cast out demons. People were, were freed from their slavery to so many oppressions. He showed what resurrection from the dead looked like. We're going to see about that in a couple of weeks when we start in John 11. When he brought people back from the dead and, and healed them of, of critical illnesses. He came to live a full human life and demonstrate the coming of the kingdom on earth. And so is the calling of Jesus' followers. To live the resurrection so after walking the sawdust trail for us, we begin a new life here and now. The promise and plan of God is to redeem all of creation. And we begin living the resurrected life by actually participating in that work. We have a job to do. We have a calling. We have a mission. Think about this. Every of the, all, all of the Gospels end with Jesus rising from the dead, but he didn't just say, I'm leaving now. He gave us a mission. Each one of the Gospels, Jesus is giving instructions for how he wants his disciples to live, what he wants them to do. And the disciples, the apostles who go on to write, tell us how to live in the midst of this world. So Paul, as we looked at last week, we looked at, or two weeks ago, we looked at 1 Corinthians 15. And when he talks about the resurrection, the power of the resurrection, and Jesus' victory over death, he ends chapter 15, that great chapter on the resurrection, he ends it with this. Therefore, because of this, in light of all of this power of, of the resurrection, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In other words... Well, then he goes on in chapter, four, in chapter 16, the next chapter, just a few passages down, he says this in verses 13 and 14, continuing with his instructions. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. That means to, to be courageous. It doesn't really fly today to say act like men because we don't really want everybody acting like men. But he's saying, be courageous, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. It's not just doing the work of the Lord. It's letting all the work of the Lord that you do be done in love. If we look at the message of Paul to the Corinthian church, he's, he calls us not to find a place to wait and to sit out the rest of this life until we get hit by that Mack truck he calls us to abound. That word abound is, is, is to freely, with passion, with confidence, with energy, do the work of the Lord. And to let the work, work of the Lord to overflow in our lives, to overflow with abundance. So what is that work? We're going to talk more about this work next week, but it's proclaiming the gospel. It's proclaiming the gospel that others may believe in Jesus. It's making disciples. It's caring for one another. It's bringing peace, order, fairness, and justice to our communities and the world. But all of that work, all of our service, is to be built on the foundation of Christ's command. To love God 
to love one another, and even to love our enemies. It's the command to love. You see, our work in the Lord is only the work of the Lord when it's carried out in the love of the Lord. So what's that look like? We're going to look at the the foundation of love today and hopefully build on that foundation into next week. So we're going to see this spelled out as we did with with the the reading of 1 Corinthians 13. How many think, uh, this is probably one of the few times that you had 1 Corinthians 13 read when you weren't at a wedding. And in some ways, it's kind of a shame because that, that sometimes we glaze over when we hear 1 Corinthians 13 because we've heard it so many times at weddings. But I want us to savor these words this morning to be challenged by them because there's some, it's one of the most powerful chapters in the Bible. And by the way, some of the famous love chapters in the Bible, think 13. 1 Corinthians 13 John 13, the new commandment I give you to love one another. Even Romans 13 talks about love. And Hebrews 13, brothers, let brotherly love continue. All these these chapters 13, chapter 13s in in the New Testament talk about the love of Christ. So if you're wanting to do a little study on on love, check out uh, uh, chapters 13 and all those books there. So let's look at this here in... uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels and I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, if you're familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 12 is all about speaking in tongues, speaking this spiritual language and how the Corinthian church was was holding this up as a a huge, there was a huge controversy going on about this and about all the gifts of the Spirit. And Paul talks to him about this, and he's saying here, he starts off with this very thing. He says, if I speak with tongues of men and angels, if I do this beautifully, but if I don't have love, I'm simply a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but if not love, I am nothing, he says. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Do you understand what he's saying here? He's saying, in other words, what what he's saying is, if I have the greatest gifts in speaking, how much do we hold people up who have these great gifts of speaking? If I have this great gift of teaching, if I have all the knowledge to move people's hearts, if I have the, 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 the ability to speak and move even the hardest hearts, if I can proclaim like nobody can proclaim, and get masses of people to follow me, if I can get incredible movements started, if I can build an amazing church, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. There's no gain. There is no gain in the kingdom of God if we build all of these magnificent monuments to ourselves If we build all of these things that our culture values and holds up so highly, but if it's not done with Christian love, if it's not done in the love of Christ, it is worthless in the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying. We heard how how important the resurrection of Christ is. This is how important love is. And what we're going to see in this passage here and what we're seeing are the three points of love here. The necessity of love, which we just see. 
Next, the character of love. What does love actually look like? And finally, the power of love. If you're a child of the 80s, that's the best, that's the best uh, title I could have for that, but uh, it's just true. Think about this in our own context. We're, we're, in, a, we're in a denomination that loves theology and, and holds theologians up very highly. And what Paul would be saying to the theologians is if I know all of my theology, if I can teach theology like nobody's business, and if I can convert hearts all over the country with my teaching, if I serve in ministry 70 hours or more a week, if I deny myself of all my pleasure and have the mercy and the love of a Mother Teresa, but if I don't have love, I gain nothing. One commentator says this, For without love, one misses the point of being Christ's people in the first place. Without love, totally misses the point of even being Christ's people in the first place. I would have probably changed my title for this sermon, but I have to have it in Friday. Then I think of something else, and so... But... There, there is a sense here where this, this is where I want to get across here. Love is the uniform of the Christian. Think about when you see a, a police officer or a soldier. They're wearing their uniform, and you know to whom they belong. As far as especially, especially the soldiers, they belong to the military. Everything they're doing, they're doing in the name of the military. And we know that by the, by the, the uniform they're wearing. We try to do that as Christians as well. We, we get shirts, we have hats, we have bumper stickers. I wouldn't recommend that. But we have bumper stickers saying that we belong to Jesus and honk if you love Jesus, you know. We wear those things because we want people to know that we belong to Jesus. But we have something that we ought to be wearing to demonstrate that we do belong to Jesus. But it's not very easy to put on or it's not very easy to keep on, and that's love. There's a Christian father, church father named Tertullian, and he's from the uh, late second century, early third century. But he has a famous quote. In one of his writings, he says this, it's mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us, upon Christians. A brand. Think about the brand that the, the, the cattle farmers put on their cattle. It's a mark that's not removed. It's burned into the skin. It's mainly the deeds of love so noble that lead many to put a brand on us. See, they say, how they love one another. How they are ready even to die for one another. Think about that vision for a church. As we talk about vision, as we're going to continue talking about vision for grace and peace, what a great vision for the church, for the follower of Christ, that the world may know us by our love for one another, that we could take down our sign, that we could meet in a different building, that we could go somewhere strange and people would know us as Christians by the way we love each other. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Can you imagine that? If people know grace and peace 
and come because, not because the music's great, not because the preaching's great, but because the community loves one another so much that they can't stay away. That they see something different. They see the love of Christ. So how does that love play out? Well, that's a verse four, verses four through seven. Paul is giving the character of love. He says this, love is patient. Another word for, for patient, I like this word better. It's an older word, but it's a better word in my opinion, long-suffering. That word has more weight to it. Love is long-suffering. It suffers long with someone. It hangs in there in difficult times. It hangs in there with difficult people. That's what love is. It's also kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't see somebody who has all of this privilege and all of, this, all of these great gifts and all of these followings or whatever. It doesn't envy. It doesn't say, I want that. I want that so bad. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. It's not arrogant. When, when you do have those gifts, it's not boasting about them because you recognize they're from God, that they were given to you for the kingdom. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, that doesn't mean the love just believes everything it's told. It's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying it never ceases to trust God and thus leave all justice and everything in God's hands. That's what, that, that's what that phrase means there, by believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It totally trusts God for all things, and that is why it could be long-suffering and patient and kind and enduring throughout all difficulty. I'm going to give you an illustration here. Um, so, I, I, you know, some will say that, that, that sermons last about three weeks and then people forget them. Um, illustrations, I think, sometimes can go a little longer. And I, I've had, I've had uh, some people, um, I gave this illustration about five years ago, and I'm going to give it again. But another one kind of came up here. So back in, the, back in the winter, this is a few years ago, I guess, probably about four or five years ago, we were outside, it was a snow day, and we had a good snow that day, and so uh, a lot of times our neighborhood and, and some friends will come over and, and do some sledding in front of our house. We have this little park with a hill in front of our house. And so uh, we were all outside and, and having a good time, and all the kids were out there, and, and the Hendricks were there as well. Uh, and Andrea was, was uh, you know, we were playing with the kids. Well, Andrea got this, this snowball. I guess it was a pretty hard snowball. And she thought she would hit Mia with a snowball. So she gets the snowball, and she, she's got a good arm, by the way. And she got it, and she threw it. Well, Mia turns and, and, and ducks or something, and who's standing there but little Evie at the time. Evie gets planted right in the face with this ball. I mean, it's, it's, it was painful to see. And, and so, of course, poor Evie is, is, is crying, and Andrea is equally almost crying because, of course, she didn't want to hurt Evie at all. She threw this ball to have some fun and to hit Mia, maybe, you know, in the back or something, and here she, she hits Evie in the face. 
We laugh about that now, and, and actually at the time it was a little hard not to chuckle. But, but Evie was, was, was hurt badly. I mean, you know, it, it hurt her. She was crying, and Andrea was hurt. Here's the thing. There was no intention to hurt anyone. But when that ball was thrown, it hit Evie in the face. And sometimes that's what we do with our words. Sometimes we take things and we throw things at people, not intending to hurt, but sometimes it deeply hurts somebody we know. I've, I've used this illustration in the past with a softball. This is kind of a beat-up softball, but, but I wrote some things on here. Truth, disagreement, comment, correction. I think that's all I got. We're a community of different people. We're a community with different stories, with different hearts, with different degrees of tenderness or sensitivities. And sometimes we want to take the truth. If we want to deliver a truth to somebody, we just take it and throw it. Not necessarily intending to hurt someone. But sometimes it gets overthrown and it hits somebody right in the face. And it hurts badly. And brothers and sisters, about Christian love here, is the fact that we are going to hurt one another. We're going to do it. I've hurt some of you. I know I, know I have. And some of you have hurt me. But in Christian love, what we want to be is long-suffering for one another, patient with one another, recognizing that maybe I have a truth to deliver, but maybe I need to be very gentle. Maybe instead of throwing this truth at somebody, maybe I go and hand it to them and see if they even are ready to take it. Maybe if it's a comment or a correction or something in the same thing. But we've got to understand that sometimes our words and the way we deliver them are going to deeply hurt one another. And it's probably the most common way we hurt one another is with our words. And I just want to ask and call on us this morning, today, that we bring that to the Lord, that we ask the Lord to help us with how we deliver our words. There are times we want to, I mean, I want to hear your feedback sometimes. I really want to hear your feedback all the time, but sometimes I don't want to hear it the way it's said. It's kind of hard. But there are times when, when we will give feedback that is, that is maybe hard to hear, but it's given in true love. It is here. Can I just give this to you? I love you. I want you to be able to give it back to me. And I want us to have a relationship here. It's what we're called to do. If we're going to be known by our love for one another, it's a good place to start. And that love will endure. But not only will it endure, 
If we go through the rest of the chapter, Paul says that love will never fail. Verse 8 says, love never ends. A better, a, a, a better translation of that, at least one that feels better to me, love never fails. Never ends, it's eternal, yes, but never fails. It's got this power that nothing can take it down. You see, the things that we value, the prophecies, the, the knowledge, the, the, the mercy, the love, all these things that, we, that, we, that give us accolades, those things are going to fail. Those things are going to fall away. Prophecies, they'll pass away. Tongues, they'll cease. Knowledge, it's going to pass away. But love never fails. Love will never fail. You know, another thing about this, Eugene Peterson talks about this too. Loving with Christian love is something that requires no education. Requires no academic degree. Requires no training. It's something a child can do. Every single one of us in here is capable of loving with the love of Christ if we are, because we're all capable of rooting ourselves in Christ and relying upon him. Love never ends. Jonathan Edwards says this. Jonathan Edwards, uh, back in the 18th century, he says this. Our spiritual life, our spiritual life being his life as truly as the life is of the branch in the tree. So uh, I've, I've got a kind of, he's kind of hard to read, but let me say this the way I would say it. Our spiritual life in Christ is that of the branch as it is connected to the vine. It's the branch as connected to the vine. And if it's connected to the vine, then it could never fail because it is connected to the ultimate source of life and fruit of the Spirit. If we are rooted and grafted in the vine, if we are abiding in the true vine, then we will never fail with our love because the vine is the resource for all of the greatest love, of the love of Christ. When we find it difficult to love someone, and we will and we do, it should drive us to abide deeper in the vine of Christ. When we're having a hard time with a difficult neighbor, when we're having a hard time enduring a hardship, when we're having a hard time with a difficult brother or sister in our, in our fellowship or in another fellowship, may it drive us closer to the vine, may it drive us deeper to graft ourselves into the vine because that's where we're going to find the love. Paul has given us an example. He's showing us what true love actually is, does, and endures. He's telling us what it is, but now how to get it is through Christ and through Christ alone. I'm going to ask you to do some homework this week. As we struggle through our, our healing and restoration process, I believe God is going to bring us through that in a beautiful way. But I'm going to ask you to listen to a sermon. 
That sermon was preached on November, November 12th of 2017. It was preached by Kurt Lutchens here. It was his last sermon at Grace and Peace. And it was on the love of Christ. I think it's entitled Instructions in Christian Love. And I listened to it and I felt like I could just quote this the whole time and I'd be good. But it's better coming from him. And I encourage each and every one of you to listen to it this week. What Paul was giving us was the call to the perfect love. It was as, as Jesus said in John 13, that the way he loved us is the way we are to love one another. And by that, we will know, that everyone will know to whom we belong. So how did Jesus love? Remember, we, we're going to struggle with this kind of love throughout our lives. Jesus never struggled because Jesus was that love in the flesh. How did he love? Jesus loved the Father, and he loved us to the point of emptying himself, as Paul says in Philippians 2, emptying himself completely of all divine privilege to live in poverty and dwell with those who were the lowest of the low. He lived a life of that character of love perfectly, loving the Father and loving humanity. He loved his enemies to the point of allowing himself to be arrested, mistreated, beaten, whipped, and crucified to death, even death on the cross, Paul says. And the power of that love never failed. It never failed because it had to be carried through. It had to endure because it was for that purpose that Jesus came to die on the cross, that he may be risen again to new life. And it's only because of that resurrection that we now have the ability to tap into that love, to tap into that new life, to have that new life ourselves, and to love one another. His call to us is to abide in him and to love others in the same way that he's loved us, brothers and sisters, to root ourselves in his love and to bear the fruit of that love, freely and without limits. The song we just sing, free to live and free to love because of the resurrection. And everything we do in that love will never be in vain. The work that we do when done in the love of Christ will never be in vain. Brothers and sisters, may our vision be that the world would know that we are Christians by the way we love each other, by the way we serve each other, by the way we care for one another. May that be so, and may God do it in us. Amen.